blessings of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. When was the last time you prayed in a prayer meeting that some non-Christian or some worldly figure was to be blessed and somebody came up and says, no, don't pray that they're blessed. Here's Psalm 129, verse 8. It's, it's almost speaking of retaliation. It begins by saying, we have been oppressed. So, Lord, sort them out. If you turn over to Psalm 137, you'll see even stronger words. How many of you have prayed like this in verse 7 of Psalm 137? Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Boy, when was the last time you prayed that for somebody uh, that the Lord would take their children and dash them against the rocks? How do we make sense of these type of prayers? Strange words. Retaliation. Should we retaliate? Now I want to look at three things very simply in this passage and then we will look at Psalm 130 right at the end. So you'll know when we're coming to the end because it's, I'll look at this right at the very end, Psalm 130. But I want to look at Psalm 129 to set it in its context. Three things, and they all begin with P. You don't, you don't get this in Nidre, alliteration, so rejoice. Uh, the first thing is this, the persecution of God's people. The persecution of God's people. The psalm opens... By looking back, the psalmist looks back over its history, the history of the nation, and sees it as a nation that has been oppressed, even from its youth. It wasn't something that just happened last week, but it's been happening ever since it was a young nation. And he says, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. And hey, he's, he's speaking on behalf of Israel, and he knows that Israel can join in. And he says, let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me. He's in Jerusalem. He's already there. Psalm, they set off in Psalm 120, singing away. And in Psalm 122, they're in Jerusalem. They're singing to God. And this is what he's singing. We have been oppressed. He's there with his own people, the Israelites. And he says, we are a, an oppressed nation. Join in with me and sing that we are an oppressed nation. When most other nations look back over its achievements, Israel looks back over its sufferings. It feels like a scarred survivor. Life has been hard. If you know anything of the, the history of the Israelites, if you know anything of the history of the Old Testament, you'll know that God's people have been very much persecuted. And look at this picture in verse 3. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. It's as if his back has been ploughed and there's deep gouges in his back. And it's speaking of whipping as if his back has been whipped and there's big lacerations. It almost it looks as if a ploughman has ridden his plough roughshod over their back. And that's how he feels. It's not a cheery song, is it? I warned you at the start. It's not a cheery psalm. The psalmist feels oppressed. The nation has been oppressed. And you look at the whole of the Old Testament. Egypt. Remember there were slaves in Egypt. The people worked them ruthlessly. The Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. The whole of their history has been one of persecution and oppression. Now there are reasons for this. The reasons are that they are God's people. God had given them his laws, his rules, his regulations. They were different. People don't like people who are different. They were different. And uh, therefore uh, persecution would have come in this way. 
It says, the wicked plot against the righteous, Psalm 37, and gnash their teeth at them. We live in a world that's fallen. But they were also rebellious against God, and God used these nations to punish them as well. But that is, is their history. But then you come into the New Testament, and God's people there, it's the same. John the Baptist beheaded Jesus himself, persecuted, crucified. Paul and the rest of the disciples persecuted and flogged, and the disciples dragged before magistrates. Then you come into church history, the early church, if you know anything special, you look at 1 and 2 Peter, Revelation, the church of Jesus Christ, going under great persecution. Christians being fed to lions, hiding in catacombs. This is God's people, an oppressed people. Fox's Book of Martyrs. I was just reminded of that recently. 16th century Spanish Inquisition and so forth. People being burned for their faith. Recant or, or die. And uh, many of them died. Bishops Latimer and Ridley and others dying. Being burned for their faith. Today... It's the same internationally. Christians in Muslim countries being persecuted for their faith. You don't think it happens? Look at the Barnabas magazine. We mentioned Patrick Sukdale. Uh, you look at that, you see Christians today still being persecuted for their faith. Nationally, you see it here as well. Sometimes government legislations, things that you can say, things that you can't say, rules, regulations, abortion, same-sex marriages. And if you speak out against these things, you're viewed as odd. What do we do in these situations? Do we retaliate? Do we say, well, I hope they get what's coming to them? And so forth. Now let's consider, therefore, verses 5 through to 8. And this is the second point. The prayer of God's people. The prayer of God's people. We really need to, to, to look at verses 5 to, to understand what the psalmist is saying here. Now verses 5 to aren't necessarily so much a prayer uttered to God, but it, you see the psalmist expressing the desires of his heart. And you see his attitude towards those who oppress him. On reading verses 5 to 8, it's easy to think that the psalmist has forgot the love your neighbour type of verses is he unfamiliar with Leviticus and so forth where, where we are told that we are to love our neighbour because he says may they be put to shame may they perish and so forth here is, is a prayer or sentiments from verses 5 through to 8 that says this Lord punish and do not bless Lord may these people perish may wickedness may unrighteousness perish Lord may you not bless May you not bless these things. It would be very easy to look at these verses and say, well, I don't blame the psalmist. Sometimes I look at the news. I look at the things that's happening in the news. I see what young folk are doing. I see the violence and say, Lord, don't bless them. Just wipe them off the face of the earth. And uh, it's very easy to look at it this way and say, well, we're only human. Eugene Peterson, in his excellent commentary on the Psalms of Ascent, misunderstood this. He said this, he says, these verses show us that God's people aren't perfect. That at times we just blow a fuse and say, well Lord, wipe them off the face of the earth. And he says, well, they're not perfect. And he says this, we cannot excuse the psalmist's vindictiveness. That's how he saw this. He saw the psalmist as being vindictive. And, and yet, he, this is to fail to understand this passage because the psalmist's prayer here isn't personal retaliation. 
It's a desire for righteousness to prevail. It's not personal. What the psalmist here isn't saying, Lord, they did this to me, so you do it to them. It's, 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 it's the, the persecution that's come on the nation and on God himself as well. It's not a personal prayer. The Bible clearly, clearly speaks against personal retaliation. Leviticus, do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that he will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus, Exodus, if you come across your enemy's ox, donkey, whatever wandering off, be sure to take it back. It wasn't just Jesus that said these things. The, the psalmist already knew this. Personal retaliation was not allowed. You see this in the New Testament as well, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul said the same thing. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. In the Bible, it's very clear, God's people are not to retaliate personally for any personal injury done to us. We are to love our neighbour. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to go the second or third mile. We are to give seven, forgive 70 times 70. But how then are we to understand verses 5 through to 8? Well, the psalmist says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame, and may those people not be blessed. Here is a prayer for righteousness to prevail. The psalmist isn't losing the plot. He's not popped his cock. He's not being vindictive. He's in Jerusalem with God's people. They see that they have been oppressed from their youth. And here is a desire for righteousness to prevail. It is not personal. It is persecution on God's people. Note the wee phrase in verse 5. May all who hate Zion. That's very important to understanding this. It's not me all who hate me and my friend and my brother and my sister. It's me all who hate Zion. Zion refers to the city of Jerusalem. But not only Zion, Jerusalem was the city of God. It has spiritual connotations. To hate Zion was not just to hate the Jewish people, but all that, that is associated with it. God, their God, His rules, His regulations, His laws. And here we see something very important. The Bible makes it very clear that people do not naturally love God. Indeed, the condition is worse than this. We hate God. That is what the Bible says. That is our condition. It's very clear. There is a difference between us and God. Humanity is unrighteous. That is what the Bible says. You and I are unrighteous. God is righteous. The Lord is righteous. But you and I are unrighteous. And the psalmist is aware of this. The psalmist knows this. And that's why he's praying this. Romans 3, Paul makes it very clear. There is no one righteous, not even one. That includes every single person with breath here this evening. There is no one righteous. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of this, the Bible says that we are objects of God's anger and God's wrath because God is holy. Ephesians, 
All of us, all of us once lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. This was my testimony before I was age of 20. I could party. I just satisfied myself. I denied myself no pleasures. Followed my own desires. Like the rest, Paul says, we were by nature. Note that. By our nature, not just by our deeds. Objects of wrath. That's what this, this passage teaches us. Because of this, we are storing up wrath, Paul says in Romans 2. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. It's almost like, like a wee reservoir that we keep, we keep filling it up with every unrighteous deed. It grows bigger and bigger. Storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Humanity is unrighteous. And this is what the psalm implies. May all who hate Zion. The Bible is very clear on this. Paul is clear on this in Romans. But it also says the Lord is righteous. One of the characteristics of God that stands above all else is that he is holy. There is no other attribute of God that you will read in the Bible where it's mentioned three times in succession. You will not find love, 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 mercy, 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 but you will find holy, holy, holy. He is three times holy. Revelation, we are told that the four living creatures with the wings and so forth, day and night, they never stop saying, even tonight as we are sitting here, they are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the Bible tells us that such a holy God cannot look upon sin. Habakkuk, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. God is such a God that he cannot look upon sin. The Bible speaks that God is not only cannot look at it, but he reacts against it. He doesn't just recoil, he attacks it. And uh, the Bible speaks about God's wrath. It speaks about God's wrath 580 times. I think I've just plucked a verse out of context here and there. I could have, I could have got my whole concordance and maybe here all night just looking at how God views sin. A sinful world. God is personally and vigorously opposed to sin. He not only recoils from it, but attacks it. And because of God and his righteousness, he must punish sin. If he tolerated sin, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be God. He would be seen to be morally indifferent to sin, satisfied with both sin and evil. And this our God cannot tolerate. He is pure. His eyes are too pure to look upon sin. The Bible is clear in this. And yet, one of the other things the Bible says is this, that this three times holy God is reluctant to punish sinners. He is most reluctant to punish sinners. Though he must punish sin, he will not, he doesn't desire to punish sinners. Ezekiel, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? You not remember the story of Jesus as well, the story or the parable of the prodigal son? He told a story of a, of a son who, who wandered away from the father, who lived his life to please himself. And yet the son came to his senses, recognized they'd done wrong, decided to come back to the father. The father didn't wait until he repented and so forth. He ran after him and embraced him as he was coming home. Jesus taught that to show us that God is a, loves the sinner, 
when we return to him. God is reluctant to punish sin. There is good news. This holy God who hates sin, who looks upon the world, who looks upon this congregation and sees that there is no one righteous, not even one, there is no one who does good. There is good news that God has found a way of vindicating his righteousness by punishing sin and yet at the same time saving the sinner. One important aspect of the death of Jesus Christ wasn't just to bring us back to God. It was to remove the wrath of God from, from us. Daniel Strange, in an excellent article entitled The Reality of Wrath, it was published in, in, a, in a magazine from Athens to, to Jerusalem, it was called, a couple of years ago. And he says this, We may rightly talk about the cross in terms of redemption, in other words, God buying us back, we were slaves to sin, he buys us back, and the price he pays is his blood. He reconciles us, and so forth. But unless we talk about propitiation, now there's a word, that's just an aspect of Jesus' death, it removes the wrath of God. He not only died to bring us to himself, he died to take the punishment and to experience uh, the displeasure of God. He says, unless we talk about propitiation, the appeasing, placating or pacifying of divine wrath, then we have no hope because we are still under God's wrath and without hope. If Jesus' death on the cross wasn't to remove the wrath of God from me, I would be without hope. You would be without hope. You would still have to face this as you stand before him. This was something John the Baptist found very difficult to grasp. You remember John's ministry. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. And his was a message of repentance. He says, there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to unloose. And his message was repent. The Saviour is coming. The Messiah, the Anointed One is coming. You need to repent. And for a number of years he preached this message. And when Jesus came, in John's eyes, that was it. It was too late. Jesus is here. The Messiah has come. And John's message was uh, very much along these lines. It says, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That was it. That was John's vision. John, the Messiah is coming, you need to repent, the axe is there, when he comes it will be too late, the axe will be swung and judgment will fall and you will be sent to hell. That was John's message. And then when he's put in prison and things don't make sense, so he begins to doubt. He says, well why am I in prison? He is here, the Messiah is here, judgment must come, the Romans must be sorted out, therefore why am I in prison? So he sends his disciples and says, are you the one we are to expect or should we look for someone else? He didn't understand, he didn't understand that Jesus didn't just come to destroy Romans, he came to bear the judgment upon himself. The axe would be swung, but it would swing upon the tree that Jesus would be nailed to. John couldn't grasp this. He thought it was too late. Jesus is here. It's too late for anybody to repent. 2,000 years later, the axe of God's judgment is still to fall upon this world. He's still giving us time to repent. One day he will return. 
Jesus came to deliver us from wrath. He came to save us. Not just from a bad marriage or a bad job. He came to save us from the wrath of God. By taking the wrath upon himself. So Jesus died on the cross. And God was angry with him. He became, he who knew no sin, became sin for us. Now this is victory. I was reminded of this just recently about good news. This is the gospel. Remember in the Old Testament where it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Remember the context of that? I was reminded of this just recently. You have people in the city. They're waiting for, for the messenger, family, husbands, wives, or whatever, standing there waiting, looking. Then the messenger comes over the hill, and what they want to hear is the gospel. They want to hear the gospel, they want to hear the good news. And what is the good news they want to hear? We won. Our king defeated their king. And that is what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. Jesus has defeated sin and death and Satan. Our king defeated the king and the principalities of this world. Our king is victorious. The Lord is righteous. He has punished sin. But not in you and I, but in his son. But here the psalmist is also saying something else. Not just unrighteousness to to prevail, but unrighteousness to perish. He says, may all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass. They used to put seed on the housetops. Uh, for insulation, put soil, thin layer of soil, put some, and grass would grow there, and then it would just wither and die. The soil had no root. And this is what the psalmist is praying. He says, may these people perish. May they perish, uh, their unrighteousness perish like this grass upon the roof. I wonder, do you look at the news, and do you not just despair? Do you not say, Lord, enough? Enough is enough, Lord. May, may these things perish. You look at young people, you look at the crimes that young people are doing, sticking axes in each other's heads, knifing each other in the back. Our world is getting worse. And yet we don't often hear these things shared in our prayer meeting. We don't hear. When was the last time you wept for our world? When was the last time you wept? Don Carson preached a sermon on the wrath of God. I was trying to get a hold of it before I prepared this. And I was told just last week at the end of the sermon, he, he wept. He realized he lives in a sinful world. It affected him that these things were, were going to happen. That's what the saints in glory pray for, isn't it? Lord, how long, sovereign Lord and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge your blood. My mother's passed away. She's in glory. Lord, how long till you return, till wickedness perishes? That's what the psalmist is praying for. The righteousness will prevail and the unrighteousness will perish. Lord, how long? Lord, let, let it die. Let it die. Do you pray for this? You do. Do you know the, wee, the, the Lord's Prayer? I used to, to go into schools in Northern Ireland. I don't get a chance to do it here. But schools in Northern Ireland. And uh, we used to say the Lord's Prayer all the time. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you prayed that? I'm sure everybody's prayed that here. I'm looking at the age of some of you. You're some of your same age as me. At least you prayed that in school. We prayed this often. We, we embroider it and we put it on, on our wall. And we think, that's a lovely prayer. It's the Lord's prayer. Do you ever think about what you're praying when you pray those opening words? Our Father, which holy be your name. Your kingdom come. If the Lord's kingdom should come tonight, that would mean judgment for, for members of my family that aren't saved. Richard Gibb and I were at the Proclamation Trust Conference and we heard William Taylor. He took over from Dick Lucas at St. Helens and he talked about in his study, he, he's, one Christmas they managed to get a, a whole photograph of all the family, young and old, they were all there. Boom, there was a photograph, got it framed, pinned it on his wall and underneath it, he says, lost and without hope, without Christ. He recognised that if the Lord's kingdom should come, it's not, yes, it's salvation for us, but it's judgment and wrath for those who do not know God. It's death for my sister. I, I, will, I will enjoy seeing my family at Christmas, hugging and sharing presents and thanking each other for their kindness and their generosity. But unless they have Christ, unless they have repented of their sin and recognized they need a saviour, they are lost. And my sister is in that condition. She sat just up there the last time I preached in this church. She heard, she left, nothing changed. And we pray this, your kingdom come. That's not a nice prayer. It's not a nice wee cosy prayer. That is the most dramatic thing. Lord, your kingdom come. You come. And it will happen. It will happen. He will come. He will come again with power to judge and it will happen. I wish I had time to read Revelation 20. It will come. The psalmist knows this. The psalmist desires this. I was reminded as well, the book of Malachi. You may want to turn to the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Do you know how that finishes? I'd forgotten about this completely until last week. When we lived in Berwick, there was wee lambs. If there's one animal I don't like, it's sheep. Sheep are the most boring animal you could ever... It's just them in grass. Them in grass. They just munch, munch, munch. When we first went there, I said, look at these sheep. It's pouring the rain. It's snowing. It's windy. They just eat grass the whole time. But see, lambs, lambs are, are bonkers. They, they, they have legs that are too big and they spring and they jump and they're like teenagers. These steam sheep have given birth to this lamb and this lamb's off its head. It's jumping, it's springing, it's on the tractor. We used to see it on the tractor on a bale of hay and it's jumping and it's springing. It's a great picture of joy and happiness just to see these wee lambs. You just look at them and it cheers you up. I'm saying, Lucille, look at that wee lamb. Boy, look at them. Look at what they're doing now. You see, after about a month or two, just them in the grass. Just honestly. They don't go, how you doing? I'll see you at the tractor. Just them in the grass. But how does Malachi finish? It talks about young calves springing and skipping and, and dancing. And this great picture of joy. And what are they dancing on? It's, it's not lush, soft grass. What does it say? Malachi 4 verse 1 Surely the day is coming it will burn like a furnace all the arrogant and every evil doer will be stubble and that day that is coming will set them on fire says the Lord Almighty not a root or a branch will be left to them but for you who revere my name the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings you will go out and leap 
like these wee calves, great joy, released from the stall, then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things. As as I'm not a more serious portion of the word of God, this is how the Old Testament finished. Picture of joy, the righteous dancing on the ashes of the wicked. That's why the psalmist prays these words at the end of Psalm 129. You cannot pray that unrighteousness will be blessed, but that unrighteousness will be punished, and that the righteousness will be vindicated, and Christ will be vindicated, and God will be God. His kingdom will come, and he will reign on earth. This should be the desire of every Christian. And it should be the joy of our heart that we will not face the wrath of God because of his son. But we should weep for those who do not know him. The psalm ends on a a very high note. It ends on the power of God. This is seen in two ways. It's seen in two ways to deliver the righteous. Look at verse 2. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. And then in verse 4, the Lord is righteous, he has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. There's this picture as if they were tied up in the ploughman or or the the guys whipping them. And the Lord comes, cuts them free, delivers them. If you know anything of the Old Testament, God's people were always delivered. They were delivered from the Egyptians, from the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and even in the Romans. God has every nation that has stood against his people, he has, he has punished. The ch- church history as well, Tertullian, even when Christians were being destroyed and being murdered, he says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more they destroyed, the more the church grew. God will deliver the righteous. He will do this. We will be vindicated. And in the future... He will dwell with us. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain or sorrow or or, or tears. He will do this. He will deliver the righteous. And yet he will deliver. It is possible for him to deliver the unrighteous. It is not God's will that any should perish. And here we come to the last psalm. Psalm 130. And we'll literally finish in a minute or two. After singing Psalm 129. Lord... May righteousness prevail. May unrighteousness be be destroyed. May it perish. He then comes in and sings, Out of the depths I cry to you. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to my cry for mercy. The psalmist in Psalm 129 is not just pointing to, 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 to people who aren't God's people and saying, Lord, just sort them out. He's aware of his own sin. He's aware that if the Lord kept a record of sins, he couldn't stand He's, he needs to be forgiven himself. Know the ingredients in his prayer, and this is what every one of us need to recognize tonight, and I'm just mentioning them to you. He's aware of his sinfulness, that he has no hope in this condition. Verse 3, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? There's none of us can stand here tonight. None of us. No, not one. And not only that, he feels that he is in the depths. He not only he doesn't just hear that he's a sinner, he feels it. He's in the depths and he cries for mercy. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Somebody in Spurgeon says, No other attribute of God could save us if God's mercy refused. We need the mercy of God. 
and yet, and yet he comes and he recognizes that, that God is a forgiving God. He says this in verse 4, But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Our God is a forgiving God. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants to save you and he wants to save me. And yet he must be righteous. He must be seen to be righteous. One day he will punish every sin in the world. But those of us who are trusting in his Son will flee from the wrath to come. We will shelter ourselves in him and say, Lord, I thank you that Jesus died for me. That he took the punishment that I deserved and I cling to him. He is our most treasured possession. Apart from him we have no hope and we are lost in the world. If you think you can come some other way, you will have to meet the wrath of God yourself. The gospel is not just about meeting our felt needs, uh, wanting to know love and joy and hope and purpose in life. These things are important. The main aspect of the gospel is this, that God has met our greatest need, our need of a saviour, to be saved from sin and death and hell. I want to close by a a quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, Why is it that people do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why is it that people are not Christians and not members of the Christian church? Why is it that the Lord does not come into their calculations at all? In the last analysis, there is only one answer to that question. They do not believe in him because they have never seen a need of him. And they have never seen any need of him because they have never realized they are sinners. And they have never realized they are sinners because they have never realized the truth about the holiness of God and the justice and righteousness of God. They have never known anything about God as the judge eternal and about the wrath of God against the Son of Man. That is so true. Only when you see your need of a a saviour Will you come to him and say, Lord, forgive me? And only then will you be born again. Psalm 129 is all about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, may unrighteousness perish. May you come. But until then, Lord, may you save May you add to the church those that you're calling to yourself. Jesus said this after that great verse in John 3.16 about so loving the world he gave his only son. He says this, Whoever believes on the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We're going to sing an old hymn. It's in Mission Praise number 521. I hesitate.